2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're beginning a series of episodes on the reptiles of the Galapagos Islands. And Rob, this is not a topic we just landed on randomly. This is related to your recent travels, right? Yeah, I had the
1: the great pleasure and the, the good fortune to visit some of the islands of the Galapagos uh, Archipelago back in October. It was uh, a fantastic family trip uh, that we'd been planning for a, a long time that we meant to do before the pandemic. And then uh, obviously we had to reschedule. Uh, but yeah, this is this was one of the top trips I've ever had the privilege to make. And um, now certainly I was visiting as a tourist, but but one of the things about the Galapagos Islands that I love is so much of the tourism there is about the natural beauty of the place. It's about the environments. It's about the animals. And uh, and so, if you're if you're going all the way to the Galapagos Islands, you you probably want to see some reptiles. You probably want to see some birds, et cetera. And they really facilitate that. Uh, the, the The local guides are are all terrific. All the ones that uh, that I interacted with, uh, very knowledgeable of everything going on there. And uh, yeah, it was a trip just unlike any other, uh, and especially when when observing these various creatures, because it was kind of like. Being a Disney princess, like being in a, a Disney, like a, a Disney princess scene in a movie, except instead of the the princess being surrounded by cute squirrels, bunnies, and birds that are singing, you're just constantly surrounded by this wonderfully bizarre cast of reptiles and uh, elaborate birds, sea lions, uh, etc. And it's unlike, too. I have to say, it's unlike the vibe that I've encountered in places like um, the Grand Canyon, where there'll be wild animals there that are protected and so accustomed to humans that that humans can get like unnaturally and alarmingly close to those animals. There's a proximity to the animals on the Galapagos islands that, um, that, that, that feels less artificial, but also equally magical, if that makes sense. Uh, again, not to say that you should attempt to touch any of the animals there or, 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 uh, or infringe upon their personal space in any way, but there's this yeah there's this feeling of proximity to nature that makes you feel like you are David Attenborough in a David Attenborough
0: documentary um you know creeping up for a close look at this animal or another or maybe you are the camera lens, and I wonder if the the difference with the Grand Canyon thing would be. The difference between animals that are, uh, unfortunately, habituated to human presence in all the wrong ways, like expecting you to have food, the calorie-rich food sources and stuff, so they'll come up to you looking for that, versus a place where animals don't seem to flee from humans because they are they come from many generations of animals without natural land predators. Yeah, yeah, and
1: uh, I, I believe that is the case with uh, with the Galapagos. So let's, uh, let's introduce everybody to the, uh, to the Galapagos Islands. If you're not familiar with the Galapagos Archipelago, it is a chain of islands in the eastern Pacific Ocean, roughly 966 uh, kilometers or 600 miles off the coast of Ecuador. It consists of 13 major islands, a few smaller islands, and these were f- all formed by repeated volcanic eruptions. The process here is similar to that which produced uh, the Hawaiian Islands, uh, which we've discussed in the show before. Uh, So they're not formed all at once, but in a chain due to underlying volcanic activity, birthing mountains and islands out of the ocean floor. So as with the Hawaiian Islands, the islands here in the Galapagos are geologically quite young, and their individual ages vary. Mm -hmm. Now, Joe, I'm not sure what age ranges you've come across for them when we get into the geologic age of the Galapagos Islands, but I've seen it vary a bit. The Galapagos Conservatory says, quote, probably no more than 5 million years, with the uh, younger, volcanically active westernmost islands
0: perhaps as young as hundreds of thousands of years old. But the idea that none of the islands there today are, are more than 5 million years old? According to some of the dates that
1: i was looking at these yeah. cited dates but just sort of casting a wide net i did see some other dates out there so um you know uh, i can only speak to the ones i'm citing here
0: well Estimates vary a bit, but it also depends on what you're counting as the Galapagos Islands. For example, I was reading a passage in a book, Galapagos, A Natural History, second edition by John Creature and Kevin Laughlin from Princeton University Press. Uh, that new edition is just, uh, just out this year in 2022. And there is a section in this book where the authors put forward the possibility that uh, some species on the islands, including the famous giant tortoises, may have inhabited the Galapagos since before any of the Galapagos Islands existed. Now, how could that be possible? Well, here's what they argue. If you look around the area of the archipelago, especially east of the existing islands, you will see what are called seamounts, which are submerged islands. They are areas where the ocean floor rises up to form a mountain, but that mountain does not uh, break through the surface of the water. So it's not an island from our perspective, but it's sort of like an island just beneath the, the, the water. Now, what are these seamounts uh, in the, the eastern part of the archipelago? Uh, well, creature and Laughlin write that they are, quote, eroded volcanic islands, and that they are possibly the original ancestral Galapagos. So they were once perhaps islands that did break above the surface but have eroded over time. Uh, and the, uh, the authors here cite a, a group of oceanographers and geologists led by a researcher named D.M. Christie who put together some dates for these seamounts and said that the dates ranged from between 5 to 9 million years, which is older than any of the existing Galapagos Islands today. So to read from this passage, quote, As Christie's team pointed out, if the original Galapagos Islands formed as much as 9 million years ago, there has been more time for colonization and subsequent evolution than once believed. This is colonization by uh, non-human animals. There may well have been tortoises on the islands for longer than any of the present-day islands have been in existence. Given regular, albeit accidental, dispersal, new islands forming over the hotspot will be colonized even as old islands erode and disappear beneath the sea from whence they came. So normally you're talking about island, uh, an island group, you would imagine that, okay, well, the earliest it could have been uh, colonized by animal species is whenever the islands we have today began. But in the case of the Galapagos, uh, a lot of the evidence of uh, the earliest colonization by animals could be under the waves. It could be just be lost because those islands aren't there anymore. Mm,
1: yeah, sort of the lost uh, animal kingdoms of the Galapagos, potentially. Now, when we're, we're talking about the, uh, the, the modern-day Galapagos Islands, uh, so, some of the main ones, uh, j- just to mention them real quick, you, you have Isabella, which is the largest, you have uh, Santiago, uh, Fernandina, you have Santa Cruz, you have San Cristobal. I, I only really visited Santa Cruz and San Cristobal and a couple of smaller unoccupied um, uh, by humans. Uh, islands that were quite uh, fascinating. And one of the the things about these islands, and you've often encountered this with, uh, with volcanic island formations, is that they're defined by steep elevation changes, and the resulting islands contain multiple microclimates due to this. So a visit to even a single Galapagos island is an encounter with multiple and varied
0: ecosystems. Right, so you'll get different climates and different uh, vegetation and, and so forth at different elevations on the island. So, uh, and, and that type of, uh, like, what vegetation is flourishing, therefore, might vary with the seasons. So, when the rainy season comes, you might get more blossoming of vegetation in the lower areas. But then, other times, animals might find the most fruitful foraging up in the highlands.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. Any one of these islands, you'll have you'll have sort of desert environments. You'll have highland lush environments. You'll have coastal environments. And these are these are this is one of the reasons that that these islands are often singled out H- historically, but even in modern research, is kind of a a laboratory of evolution. Now, uh, I'm going to keep referring back to Hawaii a little bit for uh, for, for a while because I think it's a nice sort of touchstone to compare, especially since we've we've talked about those islands on the show before as well. Um, so uh, when it comes to Hawaii, as we've discussed before, uh, you have such geographic isolation that uh, with those islands that so there are actually no native land reptiles or amphibians there. Uh, so anything in the categorization of reptile or amphibian that you find there were introduced by subsequent human arrivals by boat or ultimately air. That's the Hawaiian islands. Mm-hmm. We don't have the same situation with the Galapagos Islands for a a few different reasons. So as far as humans go, first human contact with Galapagos comes a bit later. We're talking about 1535 versus Hawaii's between 124 CE and 1120 CE. Also, Hawaii is a a greater distance from the nearest continental landmass. And uh, I should note that I think I pointed this out on the show before, but there is some dispute on whether the Inca ever reached the island, but we can be certain that Europeans reached the island in 1535.
0: Yeah. Exactly 300 years before Darwin did, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free
0: samples. So the story of the first confirmed human landing on the Galapagos is very interesting, so I wanted to tell it here. There was this Spanish clergyman named uh, Tomás de Berlanga, who uh, was a bishop. He eventually served as the bishop of the colony of Panama. And I've read it alleged in several sources that Berlanga was responsible for introducing bananas or plantains to the New World, which is... Weird, because despite how much we associate bananas with the Caribbean and South America, they are originally native to Southeast Asia. So it is alleged that this guy is responsible for bringing bananas over. But I'm not sure what the original source of this claim is. Uh, Anyway, in 1535, uh, Berlanga was traveling by ship from Panama to Peru to help sort out some kind of horrible-sounding squabble between the conquistador Francisco Pizarro and another conquistador over land and spoils after their conquest of the uh, the Inca Empire. So Berlanga's on the way down to try to help sort this out, but uh, as his ship is traveling south along the coast during the first half of the journey... It is suddenly struck by a dead calm that prevents the ship from sailing further, and then it gets dragged far off course out to sea by strong ocean currents. And just when supplies, including fresh water, are about to run out, the crew sights land. Their prayers have been answered. But, like so many early visitors, the Spaniards are almost instantly dejected by what they find, Uh, The first island where they land is found to have not a single drop of fresh water, and there's also no pasture where their horses can graze, just a bunch of giant tortoises and weird iguanas. But there were other islands nearby, so the crew tried to sail to another one to continue the search for water. Unfortunately, on the way, they were once again becalmed and could not sail for several days while just languishing there on the ship, nearly dying of thirst. Finally, the wind picked up again, and they were able to reach a second island, where once again they found no fresh water. They tried to dig a well, but when they struck groundwater, they found it to be as bitter as the sea. And here I want to read from the retelling uh, of this story by the famous naturalist William Beebe in his book Galapagos World's End, published in 1924. Beebe writes... In their extremity, they had recourse to a plant, which has saved many a thirsty man and animal. And by chewing the fruit and juicy stalks of the cactus, they kept themselves alive. They took a page from the, uh, the tortoise playbook there. Yeah. Uh, not all withstood these privations. One man and two horses died of thirst, and so the first grave on the Galapagos was dug. Sunday came and the bishop celebrated high mass on those desolate shores where, as he said, quote, it looked as though God had caused it to rain stones. Brutal doom metal bishop. <laughs> uh, uh, and then, uh, BB goes on sea lion slipped through the creaming surf and looked curiously at the little group of strange beings and long winged seabirds poised and swooped above the cross and the Spanish flag planted side by side among the cactus and thorny scrub. So I think BB is taking a little Liberty with the storytelling there, but all plausible, you know, given the, given the local, uh, flora and fauna.
1: Yeah. Des- desolate beaches, weird sea lions hanging about. Well, I guess they the, the sea lions are not really described here as weird. They would have certainly been exposed to sea lions already. But I, in my book, sea lions are
0: inherently strange, uh, but also very amusing to watch. They're just playfully rolling about while these people have church dying of thirst. <laughs> Uh, So finally, after the worship service, the Spaniards did find some small amount of fresh water. I've seen what they found alternately described as uh, spring water and as little pools collected in cup-shaped depressions in the rocks. And Mm -hmm. using this water, either the spring water or the rock pools, they, they filled up their containers and they departed again for the coast of Peru. Now, Berlanga made a number of observations while on the island writing, according to an 1884 translation of his letters, that the animals of the Galapagos were, quote, so silly that they did not know how to flee, uh, and that as a result, wild animals were easily caught in the hand. Well, that
1: does match up, I think, with the, the reality of visiting the Galapagos Islands even today. Not that you should be chasing any of the animals and certainly not catching them in the hand, but yeah, there is this, like I said, there's this sense that... um like they they don't necessarily understand what we are, and they're not threatened by us unless we get too close and Then a lot of these animals will let you know, so <laughs> yeah don't don't get too close to the sea lions wherever you find your sea lions, don't get too close to the tortoises or the iguanas.
0: Now, Rob, you mentioned that the tourism at the Galapagos today is almost entirely centered around the island's natural beauty and biological and ecological significance. You know, this is a place where you go to see the the natural landscape and the flora and fauna. You're not going there to see to go to Six Flags Galapagos.
1: Right, right. Um yeah, and it, and yeah, I mainly mean, yeah, you're not going to find that. You're not going to find I didn't really see much in the way of like a party boat kind of culture that you find in a lot of uh-huh. uh, locations. It's, um, you know, th- there, is, there is culture there. There's some, some great restaurants. There's, there's great local culture. And the, the, the people who live there uh, were, were on the whole very friendly and, uh, and uh, loved interacting with them quite a bit. But, yeah, it's when people go to the Galapagos, I mean, the main selling point, the, the big deal for for everyone seems to be the, the the natural world that is
0: available to you there and despite this modern appreciation for the natural beauty and and uh, wondrous ecological significance of the Galapagos a recurring theme among early visitors is a reaction exactly the opposite <laughs> so in the novel Galapagos uh, kurt vonnegut wrote that the early spanish explorers quote did not claim the islands for spain any more than they would have claimed hell for spain <laughs> I haven't read this novel, but um, uh, I did
1: see it in bookstore. There was a, a nice bookstore uh, on one of the islands in, in the Galapagos, and uh, they, they had it there. They were you know, probably had several uh, Darwin-related books, and then they had Vonnegut's Galapagos. And I was tempted to pick it up, but then I was like, I don't know if I'm in the mood for post-apocalyptic uh, uh, literature at the moment.
0: I've actually never read that one either. Uh, But so, yeah, it just seemed like the Spanish were not very interested for a while. There were apparently no notable mineral riches to mine, at least that they were aware of. Uh, No people living there to conquer or enslave. There was very little fresh water. So the Spanish just did not seem very interested in these islands. And during the 17th century, it seems like the Galapagos largely served as a base for uh, people who didn't want to be found, for pirates and privateers, privateers who would attack Spanish ships to steal the gold that the Spanish had stolen from the Incas, uh, or just pirates who attacked and raided coastal settlements on the mainland.
1: Yeah, yeah. When when it comes to the human history of the Galapagos, it's easy to sort of think, oh, well, Darwin, uh, and then you sort of fast forward to today. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of bloody history there uh, it was this it was an extreme location that like you said, didn't have a lot seemingly to offer except as a place of refuge for people engaged in various bloody activities. Uh, sometimes it seemed like a place for utopia uh, yeah, um, utopian ideals. And um, of course, those sorts of ventures don't always turn out well either. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a, a very interesting human history there that is not all just bird watching by any means.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, though continuing the theme of like the the lack of appeal of the islands to many people who first arrived there, Charles Darwin himself wrote of his first impression of San Cristobal Island that quote nothing could be less inviting. <laughs> that's 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 funny because um, yeah, they are on San, San Cristobal Island.
1: You'll, there's like a statue of, um, of of Charles Darwin in front uh-huh. of a ship with his hand out, and uh, I had my I got my picture made with this, of course. Uh, but there, yeah, there's statues of Darwin
0: all over the islands. Nice. Um, now, well, yeah, I mean, you know, Darwin warmed up. You know, he, he oh, he, yeah. there's a lot to learn there, but uh, but yeah, apparently, first setting eyes on it, he was like, yeah, not cool. Yeah, that's not the quote that's like on a plaque beside this, uh, yeah. this statue. <laughs> uh, now regarding uh the this story about Berlanga's accidental landfall in the Galapagos being the first confirmed human visit, it is important to stress that this is the first visit by humans we're sure about, but there are all kinds of interesting arguments about whether or not others had been there before, and they're theories of contact regarding the Incas, uh, Pacific peoples, and so forth. But I, I think all of these are speculative, and the, the evidence is questionable. There there was certainly no permanent human settlement in pre-Columbian times, and the earliest arrivals by humans appear to be by accident.
1: Yeah, you, you get into that situation, though, where yeah, if, if earlier peoples had come there, they probably wouldn't have stuck around, and what would they have left behind? What evidence would there be? So, yeah. We're left to speculation. Now, coming back around to um, uh, the reptiles, uh, which is going to be the, the main thing we're talking about in these episodes. Um, again, the Hawaiian Islands, no native reptiles. But we have these fascinating examples of reptiles on the Galapagos. Um so while, while while reptiles never had a chance to, to reach the Hawaiian Islands on their own, the Galapagos Islands are in just the right position, it seems, to have been gifted some wandering, um, lost-at-sea reptiles, uh, and yet at the same time isolated enough that they were able to evolve there unmolested for a very long time. Um, so it's, it's kind of fascinating to think about that. Like if they had been— in any other location, you know, there might have been a situation where, yes, humans would have found this place and colonized it much earlier. It might be in a position where these reptiles would not have reached it of their own power or by the power of, of wind and, and water, which uh, seems to be the case. I think in the main examples of terrestrial reptiles reaching the Galapagos Islands, they tend to involve rafting. They tend to involve animals being um, Uh, just uh, swept out to sea via rivers in South America. And then, you know, a number of those animals are going to perish, but some of them are going to find themselves uh, cast upon a deserted island. And from there, they begin to find
0: ways to survive and these new forms evolve. Well, this sounds like a perfect transition to the marine iguana. Rob, are you ready? Yeah, let's
1: talk about the marine iguana. Probably not not the most famous denizen of the islands, but at least number two.
0: Yeah, yeah. And certainly maybe the most uh, salient in my brain, because specifically to come back to Darwin, Charles Darwin's discussion of the marine iguana, or uh, scientific name uh, Amblyrhynchus uh, cristatus, in The Voyage of the Beagle has long stuck in my head. So, of course, the Voyage of the Beagle is the common name used to refer to the published writings of Charles Darwin after his sails on uh, on the HMS Beagle with uh, Captain Fitzroy. And uh, this, uh, this chapter on the Galapagos in the Voyage of the Beagle is very famous. But the subsection on the marine iguana has long stuck in my head, notably for the weird disrespect with which Darwin treats these animals. Uh, so I want to read a, a few selections as we go about here from the, this passage in the Beagle with some abridgments. But to start off, this is what Darwin says, talking about the marine iguana. It is extremely common on all the islands throughout the group and lives exclusively on the rocky sea beaches, being never found, at least I never saw one, even 10 yards inshore. It is a hideous looking creature (laughs) of a dirty black color, stupid and sluggish in its movements. Uh, And in his journal, he refers to them initially as, quote, large, disgusting, clumsy lizards. (laughs)
1: well i mean they they do lay around in clumps um which i could imagine some seeing this as being kind of gross looking but on the same on this on the same note the way they kind of lounge around sometimes they they seem oddly human in the way like one will sometimes have an arm slung over the shoulder of another Mm. like it's like it's too like it's an old married couple staring out at the sunset or something puppy pile Um, yeah yeah kind of a puppy pile and and there is kind of an awkwardness to them sometimes when they move around on land. Uh, but I don't know. That's
0: kind of charming more than anything. So early chroniclers often use the same kind of terms. They call this animal ugly, hideous. Some of them make bizarre value statements such as comparing them to devils or imps <laughs> of darkness. Uh, Darwin himself in The the Beagle quotes a description by a previous author, a Captain Colnett, who visited the Galapagos, uh, who says in the part of his work that Darwin quotes, quote, they go to sea in herds of fishing and sun themselves on the rocks and may be called alligators in miniature. And elsewhere, Colnet marveled at their ugliness, writing, quote, so disgusting is their appearance that no one on board could be prevailed upon to take them as food. Not even <laughs> sailors would eat them. <laughs> And I'm gonna say I, I take personal offense to all this. I think marine iguanas are beautiful. I want to hug and kiss them. I know I shouldn't. I I would never do that, but I want to.
1: Yeah, I, they do look kind of like imps, but I think in a good way. I, I often we often thought that they looked kind of like tiny godzillas. Something about the uh, the, the shape of their their heads and their snouts, and of course the little uh, you know protrusions on the top of their head it gives them kind of a a kaiju appearance, and um, that, there's so many things about them. They're just a lot of times, you know, they're lounging around. They're not doing anything. But then when they are moving about, uh, even on the land, uh, they can be quite amusing. Like for instance, if one is making a beeline for something, especially if one is coming out of the water or it's time to go to the water, sometimes something will, will seem to get in the way of their their journey. Like maybe a sea lion or a human wanders into their path, and they'll just kind of stop. And they'll, they, they won't they will skitter out of the way or anything, but they just kind of wait until whatever did is, is, has moved on, and then they'll keep going. So there's this is kind of like laid back, carefree of energy
0: to these creatures. They're kind of wasted away again in Margaritaville.
1: Yeah, yeah, kind
0: of. By the way, you mentioned their stubby little snouts. That's actually what the genus name means. Amblyrhynchus means blunt snout. Ah, well, we'll come back to that blunt snout in a bit.
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
0: However, to to come back to uh, Darwin's uh, writings on the marine iguana, his unseemly anti-iguana prejudice aside, he does make some correct observations about them. For example... Captain Colnett, remember, said that they go a-fishing in sea herds, you know, they're going to go out and catch fish. Darwin says, I don't know about that. He challenges the idea that they eat fish, and in fact, we now know they do not. Instead, Darwin observes that these animals seem to subsist on a kind of seaweed or algae, which cannot be found on land, and he reasons that this explains why they evolved to go to sea in the first place.
1: Yeah, and this is this is spot on, of course, and, and we'll get into, into it more in a bit. But but yeah, it's also very observable if you're watching the creatures, because sometimes they're going to be uh, eating algae that's under the water and perhaps out of view. But other times, it's, it's algae, especially as the tides change. It's like partially in, partially out of the water. So you can see them there munching,
0: grazing on the algae on the rock. Though, as a side note, Darwin says one dissected iguana stomach did have a piece of crab in it. Though uh, he thinks this might have been eaten by accident, and he compares this to cases where a vegetarian tortoise has a caterpillar in its stomach because the caterpillar was just on the leafy vegetation the tortoise was eating. In fact, we've done whole segments uh, about this on the show before, about herbivores eating animals accidentally or even sometimes on purpose. Yeah. But after introducing them, Darwin goes on to describe the animals uh, in detail, describing their movements with a strange mix of admiration and disgust. So here's what he says, when in the water, this lizard swims with perfect ease and quickness by a serpentine movement of its body and flattened tail, the legs being motionless and closely collapsed on its sides. A seaman on board sank one with a heavy weight attached to it, thinking thus to kill it directly but when an hour afterwards he drew up the line, it was quite active. Their limbs and strong claws are admirably adapted for crawling over the rugged and fissured masses of lava, which everywhere form the coast. In such situations, a group of six or seven of these hideous reptiles may oftentimes be seen on the black rocks, a few feet above the surf, basking in the sun with outstretched legs. And then he goes on to note a strange, perplexing, almost contradictory observation about their behavior. So, while the iguanas go to sea in order to forage, that's how they make a living, they swim out in the water, get the algae and eat it, he found that he could not scare them into the water. If he approached one, it would back away from him until it reached the edge of a rock hanging over the water, but once at that point, it would stop retreating, it would just let him approach and catch it, rather than flee into the water. And here we come to the infamous iguana chucking scene of The Voyage of the Beagle. Darwin writes, I threw one several times as far as I could into a deep pool left by the retiring tide, but it invariably returned in a direct line to the spot where I stood. It swam near the bottom with a very graceful and rapid movement and occasionally aided itself over the uneven ground with its feet. As soon as it arrived near the edge but still being under water it tried to conceal itself in the tufts of seaweed or it entered some crevice. As soon as it thought the danger was past, it crawled out on the dry rocks and shuffled away as quickly as it could. I several times caught this same lizard by driving it down to a point, and though possessed of such perfect powers of diving and swimming, nothing would induce it to enter the water. And as often as I threw it in, it returned in the manner above described. Uh, Now, this is indeed a really odd bit of
1: behavior, right? Yeah, so it would seem. Now, now before we get into that, I want to just mention. I want to make two comments about Darwin's writing here. First of all, I do get the impression that perhaps Darwin was not a cat person or had (laughs) had a cat because, like, this is the same the same situation. I think any cat owner can attest to. It's like I tried to put the cat where I wanted it to be, and it did not want to be there. So strange. (laughs) but uh, but on the other hand, uh, I, I do love the part where he talks about how graceful they are in the water because that is also a huge treat getting to watch these uh, these these lizards uh, swim about because it's I mean it's it's unlike anything you see with any other species on the planet there's this this graceful indeed serpentine movement to them there whatever awkwardness you might observe on the land is not present in the water and it's yeah it's like watching a a strange aquatic little dragon move about
0: well i think it's also about the way that like they anatomically modify themselves to move in the water versus on land because as darwin says they collapse their legs to the side and almost mm-hmm. become a snake in the water
1: yeah, but with their their heads up in a in a way that like you wouldn't mistake it for a snake. Like the profile of the swimming marine iguana is unlike anything uh, certainly that I've ever seen. So it really stands out in your mind. Like your mind instantly uh, is is identifying that this is something different. This is something novel.
0: I agree and having seen uh, not in person but seen plenty of uh, you know video of it. They are beautiful when they're swimming. But to come back to this odd behavior. So Darwin says, okay, th- these things They go in the water all the time. That's how they eat. They go down in the water, they eat, they come back. How come I can't scare one into the water or get it to stay in the water by throwing it in? I throw it in the water, it just comes back out. Darwin comes up with a guess about why it acts this way. He says, quote, Perhaps this singular piece of apparent stupidity may be accounted for by the circumstance that this reptile has no enemy whatever on shore, whereas at sea it must often fall prey to the numerous Sharks? Hence, probably, urged by a fixed and hereditary instinct that the shore is its place of safety. Whatever the emergency may be, it there takes refuge. So, okay, that's an interesting guess. He says, uh, it has natural predators in the water, but not on land. So it just feels safer on land, even if here I am threatening it on land because it's just acting out of instinct.
1: Yeah, yeah. It would seem to be a a decent theory. And and indeed, on on land, nothing really messes with them, except when they're smaller. And when they're smaller, they're, you know, like, and this is the case with a number of uh, iguanas and lizards. Like, until they reach a certain size, they're on the menu for various other creatures and birds and whatnot. But once they reach a certain uh, um, maturity, uh, yeah, they can just bask where they want. Nothing's going to mess with them.
0: Yeah. Well, at least uh, in the ancestral environment of the Galapagos now introduced dogs and pigs and all that uh, stuff that humans brought there will prey on them. Right. So I decided to follow up on this and see, has there been any subsequent research about this behavior in marine iguanas that could confirm or deny Darwin's guess about the evolutionary reasoning there? And I found a paper that addresses exactly this topic. It is by Edmund S. Hobson called Remarks on Aquatic Habitats of the Galapagos Marine Iguana, Including Submergence Times, Cleaning Symbiosis, and the Shark Threat. Uh, This was published in a journal called uh, Copia in 1969. And it seems that sharks do occasionally eat the iguanas, as Darwin guessed. Uh, A report of the contents of shark stomachs in 1903 by Heller did find some marine iguanas in there. But Hobson thinks that the threat to iguanas by sharks is mostly exaggerated given that he and his colleagues directly observed iguanas and sharks swimming in the same waters side by side, and he says almost all the time they just ignore one another entirely. To read from Hobson, quote, To the contrary, the general situation finds sharks swimming slowly among smaller fishes with no overt sign that they regard these animals as prey. Certainly sharks are efficient predators when they do attack. But situations evoking attack are relatively infrequent. At Narborough Island, I saw white-tipped sharks and a gray shark pass within a few meters of surface-swimming iguanas with no indication that they regarded the iguanas as prey. George Barlow and I made a similar observation involving a large hammerhead at Hood Island. So, if it's not a fear of sharks, what explains this behavior?
1: Well, if I were to venture a guess, I'd say it it has to do with temperature, that there are thermic reasons at play here.
0: Great thinking. And this is exactly what Hobson concludes. Hobson argues that the best explanation for this apparently weird behavior observed by Darwin is that the water is cold. You know, they have to go Mm -hmm. in there to get food, but they don't want to spend any more time in there than they have to because it's cold and they're reptiles. Uh, To read from Hobson, uh, citing another researcher named Bartholomew, quote, Bartholomew in 1966 offered a more plausible explanation after noting that iguanas basking on the rocks ashore have a preferred body temperature of 35 to 37 degrees Celsius, over 10 degrees Celsius above that of the sea. He suggested that iguanas which are taken from the rocks and thrown into the water immediately return to land simply because they are reluctant to cool off. Uh, And I I love this explanation. It also does seem plausible to me, but I love this because it highlights something about human thinking that even Darwin himself was not immune to. Uh, And Rob, I think you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here. When humans are trying to come up with explanations for an animal behavior or a feature of an animal body or something, I think humans are way too quick to jump to two types of explanations. Those involving mating and those involving predation, sex and violence. Just in our brains, sex and violence are more salient explanations than all kinds of other pressures that exist in nature and do drive animal body plans and animal behaviors, things having to do with just base physical realities of the world, like maintaining body temperature, thermoregulation, access to oxygen, all kinds of things like that that explain tons about the natural world, it's just our brains just don't jump to those things as quickly when we're looking for a why.
1: Yeah, I, I think modern uh, reptile enthusiasts, especially any who have engaged in keeping of reptiles, they'll be pretty quick to to tell you, oh yeah, temperature is important, temperature regulation. Uh, you know, lizards, snakes, they want their warm places, and and they're certainly going going to realize that. But yeah, this is an easy easy trap to fall into. I should also say i did I did go into the water in the Galapagos uh, snorkeling once, and it is to me a non iguana uh, quite cold so i can <laughs> I can in, in some way at least uh, understand how they feel about it.
0: Yeah, so Mark me is convinced I think that iguana kept swimming back and crawling out of the water after Darwin threw it in because it was getting cold and it wanted to, it wanted to warm back up on the rocks.
1: Yeah, and like I say they're pretty chill but they're like no, it's too cold. I would like to get out. And he's like I'm throwing you back in. He's like, mm, too too cold. I wish to get out. It's not time. It's not time. I will get in the water when I am warmed up enough to do so." Now, getting into uh, a little bit about the evolution of the marine reptiles. Um uh, it, it's it's very fascinating, especially again thinking of them uh, as this 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 really largely singular uh, occurrence in the modern world. So I was looking at a few different sources. One of these was uh, Marine Reptiles by Rasmussen et al. from 2011, published in PLOS 1. Uh, they point out th- here that, that lizards make up 60% of all reptiles, but very few lizard species compared to, say, turtles and snakes are present in our oceans. And this, uh, this isn't getting in, so much into the issue of prehistoric aquatic reptiles, which do include extinct uh, squamates like the mosasaur. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mosasaurs, which were actually distant relatives of modern iguanas and monitor lizards, uh, were, were pretty fascinating in and of themselves. They were gigantic. They reached lengths of up to 12 meters or 40 feet. Uh, they swam in earth's oceans, uh, roughly 66 million years ago. They hunted other marine reptiles and it's possible they gave birth to live young in the water. Uh, though, um, I'm not sure it's it's. This is certain. Uh, there's various studies out there uh, about possible egg finds of the mosasaurs, uh, but it's worth mentioning here to drive home the difference between today's marine reptiles and those of the past. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially, uh, you know, thinking about sea turtles, thinking uh, too uh, about the marine iguana. These are animals that, um, to varying degrees, are, are great in the water, but they still must return to shore to complete some vital stage of their um, of their life. Certainly with sea turtles, with, with the marine iguana, it's more living on the shore, but then going into the water to graze and feed. Yeah. So of extant lizards that are in any way aquatic, there are only a few extreme examples. Um, and this includes uh, the Western Pacific mangrove monitor, which is a, a carnivore. Uh, but as the authors here point out, the Galapagos marine iguana is the most aquatic of all extant uh, lizards. It basks, breeds, and lays eggs on land, etc., but it has to go into the water to feed. It is, by other definitions, the only squamate that's actually able to exploit the sources of the ocean in a meaningful way. So the aforementioned monitor lizard, for example, can catch fish, but it also feeds on terrestrial meats as well. I should also note that there are other iguanas on the Galapagos Islands, to be sure, including seven smaller species and three species of land iguanas in the genus um, Conolophus. They include the beautiful and rare Galapagos pink iguana, uh, which is a most special creature. I included a picture of this for you, Joe, and everyone out there. You should look up a picture of the Galapagos pink iguana. This is not something I got to see when I was there, because it, it lives in a very... Uh, remote uh, part of the islands, uh, not not even even locals don't usually get to see this creature.
0: The first thing that popped into my head is it looks kind of like a hot dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's you know it's
1: it's 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 a special it's an iguana pink. Yeah, uh, but yeah, these are these are rare and beautiful creatures. But again, the marine iguana is the real standout here. The other iguanas are a lot of fun to watch too, if you if you visit. Uh, but yeah, the marine iguana is is special. The average adult is around 1.2 meters in length, so they're not huge. uh, And they're found on
0: virtually every island of the Galapagos. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love—
1: So coming back to the question, how did any of these lizards get to the far-flung Galapagos islands? The answer, according to Rasmussen et al., is probably that they're all related to iguanas from South America that were washed from the South American mainland, again, perhaps by river floods, and carried out to the Galapagos. And again, this is where the Galapagos' isolation yet closer proximity to a continental mainland comes into play. The theory is also in part supported by the fact that as distinct as the four bigger iguanas of the Galapagos Islands, including the marine uh, iguana, uh, are, uh, they are closely related, and they actually can breed with one another to produce hybrids. So hybrids have been reported, according to Rasmussen et al. Uh, The marine iguanas spend quite a bit of time in the water, though, foraging for their food. As adults, they feed almost exclusively on the red and green algae. They're um. It's been pointed out they're not above at least trying out the odd scra- scrap of this, that, or the other, and perhaps that accounts for the the, the crab claw that uh, Charles Darwin reported. And there's at least one population of the marine iguanas that has been observed to supplement their diet with land plants. But for the most part, their hindgut has evolved to thrive on the algae. Like they're they're bound to the algae. This is not just a this is not just a lifestyle choice at this point. Right. And their bodies have adapted in other key ways as well to allow this marine diet due to uh, the considerable selection pressure that's been applied to them, uh, which is quite literally the selection pressure of being cast upon a resource-depleted island. So we, we mentioned their flattened tail. That's one of the adaptations. Um... And, uh, and it, it's not like you don't find flattened tails in other um, uh, lizard species, but this is clearly something that seems to help out their swimming. They also have limited webbing on their feet, which uh, I, I saw kind of a, two different takes on this in the literature I was looking at. On one hand, there's the argument like, yeah, it's the partially webbed feet. This is going to help them swim. But others say, well, the webbing is not that extensive. It maybe
0: helps a little bit, but let's not overstress its importance. Well, I'm no marine iguana expert, but I— It seems to me, at least when I've seen images of them swimming, it doesn't seem like they paddle with their feet much at all that I recall, Uh, but maybe they do sometimes.
1: Something that everyone agrees on, though, is that their claws have become more powerful to allow them to grip the rocks in the surf during feeding. And this is certainly key because... If, you, if you're observing one from the shore or if you're looking at images or footage of them uh, or, or if you're snorkeling and get to see one underwater, I, I did not get to see one underwater firsthand, uh, but uh, e- either way. When they're feeding, uh, they're often in an area where the, the you know the the surf is di- disrupting them and would make it difficult to feed if they were not able to hold on and latch on. And then, of course, when they get in or out of the surf, they're going to need to uh, keep from being swept up anyway. So, yeah, they got to have those powerful
0: claws to aid them. That's not an easy lifestyle, like crawling out of the surf onto rocks. I mean, think about. It. <laughs> Uh how dangerous how dangerous it would be to try to land a boat or even just swim up onto jagged rocks as the tide is coming in and out.
1: Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, I was also now. This was something I was told by one of the, uh, the the guides in the Galapagos Island, who again are, are very um, knowledgeable of all of this. Uh, so it, you know, it, it, they're they're very quick to spout out all the the scientific names of all the creatures you're looking at, and uh, they're they're up on uh, the, the latest uh, uh, findings and so forth. Uh, it was pointed out that they'll utilize those sort of thorny spikes on their head, and I I almost. Uh, hesitate to say face, in order to loosen up the algae on the rocks by sort of rubbing their heads against it. It uh, And then it should also be noted, we we touched on this earlier, but there's the whole regulation of of their body temperature. Uh, and this is key, because again, the water's cold, and these are cold-blooded animals. So they spend a fair amount of time basking in the sun, and the, the way, uh, this is certainly one way it was described to me uh, there, and uh, this is backed up in the uh, the, the paper that I was reading uh, recently, is that in order to go into the water, they kind of have to power up. So like they're powering up, they're like on the, the, on the beach or on the rocks, basking in the sun, kind of filling their batteries up all the way. And then when it's time, well, then it's time. Now it is time to go into the water to forage for food. And they make that beeline but it's only then only only then and they're not going to be thrown in early by some deranged englishman <laughs> and and if something should get in their way well they're just going to wait patiently for a little bit but they're they've got a place to be
0: uh it is time to go into the water and feed so it's a constant trade off of managing different energy resources in the body you've got you know your your thermal energy like you need to bask on the land to uh to get your body temperature up but then you need to go into the water to get food for your metabolism, and you're sort of just always trading back and forth between the two.
1: Yeah. Now, when they're in the water, their heartbeats also reduce from about 43 beats per minute on land to seven to nine beats per minute in the water. So that's also an interesting uh, adaptation they have. And then uh, this is another famous one that's a lot of fun to, to watch. You see this in footage, every nature documentary that's covered marine iguanas. But both of the main varieties found in the four larger iguanas, they have salt glands um, that help them process uh, an abundance of salt, uh, should it be in the body. But with the, with the marine iguanas, this, of course, is very visual, because if you're just watching them lounge about, they're going to regularly appear to sneeze. Uh, they're not sneezing, They're blasting salt uh, out of these salt glands, basically blasting salt out of their nostrils as they lounge about on their rocks. And as they're doing this too, making these you know cute little sneezing sounds or gross little sneezing sounds, however you want to look at it, they're also kind of like crusting over the tops of their heads with this, with you know like white salt crystals. Uh Uh, So you can tell like which ones haven't been in the water that recently, uh, because they have this kind of like salty look to their heads. They got the salt snot
0: on there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, this comes back to something else Darwin said. He was like, oh, they there, you know, you can back them into a corner and you can catch them. They they don't really bite." I don't think that's true, by the way. But he says they don't really bite, but they will blow salt out of their noses at you. Yes, I was. I remember reading this as well because I was
1: uh, when we were in the Galapagos. I, I pulled up the the, the text. And uh. I was reading it, and yeah, there is this. Um, Accusation that they're doing it defensively uh, and yeah this does not seem to that. be the case no yeah uh, they're, they're just doing it uh, maybe they're doing it I guess I guess it's this I have no data on this, but I guess it's possible that if someone has, is coming at them and backing them away, then maybe that does seem to incite a snort because they're about to move uh, but other than that yeah there's I, I've seen nothing to indicate that this is in any way a self-defense measure. That's
0: right up there with avian defensive vomiting.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of back and forth on that, right? I think we've discussed that. Like, is a is like a vulture vomiting in order to uh, like free up room uh, and you know make itself lighter so it can take off and get away? Is it offering a bribe to a scavenger that may be coming after them and decide to go for vomit instead of fighting a buzzard? Like there there are various interpretations of that, as I recall. Now uh, on the the issue of marine iguana evolution, I was looking at another source. This was a uh, from Martin Wachelski in a 2005 edition of the Royal Society, a paper entitled Evolution of Body Size in Galapagos Marine Iguanas. And I found this one interesting because it, uh, the author here lays out one possible model for how the marine iguanas evolved. So first of all, iguanas arrive, according to this this um, this theoretical model, in the Galapagos perhaps 10 to 15 million years ago from South America via rafting, so swept out to sea, Uh, floating on some vegetation and so forth, and then being cast on this strange island. And once they're there, it becomes clear eventually here that in the intertidal zone, there's plenty of food for iguanas, but it's not on the land. It's the algae in the water. Uh, Initially, the iguanas are going to have to depend on low tides to get to the food. So the tide goes down iguanas are, uh, are daring to, to get down in there and go after the algae. And so there's going to, but from there, that's where we're going to begin to see the selection pressure towards larger bodies. For thermal inertia and also the ability to anchor themselves in the surf, as well as these other adaptations that we mentioned, like the bigger claws, ultimately the the shorter snout as well, uh, that's going to be a part of their their foraging behaviors. They essentially like rub their their faces against the the rocks to gnaw off the algae, uh, as well as the like swimming morphological changes. Interesting. Yeah, there's and there's there's actually a lot of a lot of work that comes out related to the marine iguanas like there's no shortage of papers there's one from uh 2021 that i was looking at uh, cranial anatomy of the galapagos marine iguana by uh paparella and caldwell in the american association for anatomy and uh they they point out some of the you know the key changes just to the head of the creature uh, via its evolution uh modified configuration of the snout and nasal chamber increased muscle attachments in the temporal post-orbital region of the skull and, uh, din- and also the teeth as well. So all of this is coming, uh, seems to revolve around what they're feeding on and how they're feeding on it and how that's affecting uh, just like the, the overall shape and even like the, the muscles
0: of the head. And I imagine they make some guesses from this about how far back in, in time the marine iguanas uh, had these evolutionary changes.
1: Yeah, one of the authors here, uh Paparella, uh, I found this is actually I believe from another paper, but I saw uh, this author saying that uh, arguing elsewhere for an iguana colonization of the ancient Galapagos Islands as far back as 20 to 25 million years ago. And I think in this we're getting into uh into into this idea of not only the the existing Galapagos Island but these like pre-existing Galapagos Islands, the ones that like you said have now been lost and are submerged. Um Uh, wrote that like this, we would have had like an initial dispersal followed by constant short range hopping from older to newer islands. Mm. So, you know, they get a foothold on one place and then they can, they can spread to these other islands much more easily. And then as new islands emerge, that opens up new places for them to be. And of course, as old islands die away, then so do the, the populations of those islands or they, you know, or they're forced to disperse to newer islands. And Joe, from that, that paper about the, the shape of their heads, I included this wonderful image. This one, I think—I uh, didn't get this out of the paper itself, but this was, I believe, from a, um, uh, uh, like a, a Twitter post by the American Association for Anatomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's out there if anyone wants to, to look it up for themselves. But uh, yeah, you see a very, very high-definition close-up on both the head of the marine iguana and then also a comparison of the skull— which I thought was just very insightful. Looking at these, because um, you know, it just looks—it looks very much unlike a lot of the lizard skulls you might see. Like glancing at it, you might not even think of it as a lizard skull. I mean, it doesn't look like a human skull or anything. Um, it's distinct, but uh, you can clearly see like the changes that have taken place here.
0: Yeah, the blunt snout and the the density of it. I mean, it, it almost—you uh, could imagine it being more of a turtle skull, or again, I mean, it looks kind of like Godzilla.
1: Yeah. Like Godzilla and I like how they kind of have, you see, especially in close-up, they like these this real sense of iguana lips. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah. You also get a really good look up inside the nostrils. Yeah. This of course is a specimen though. This is a dead iguana that Joe and I are gawking at here. Um, uh, but still, beautiful specimen. <laughs> But yeah, the marine iguanas are are, are special creatures, and I don't. I, I think I don't even have to tell anyone this. It, this is not new information. Uh, there have been so many documentaries that, of course, have covered the Galapagos Islands that have caught brilliant footage of them. They are a standout species, so they've been highlighted in in various shows over time. Or you've you've no doubt seen articles about them, or see them popping up in lists. So, so yeah, n- nothing nothing new in me saying that these animals are great. But uh, but like all these things, yeah. If you, if you get to see them in in person, if you have that chance, take that that opportunity because uh, they're they're
0: pretty remarkable. I would like to to see the iguana puppy pile. <laughs> hey, we haven't even touched on the most famous reptiles of the Galapagos, and I think we're going to have to do that in the next episode. That's right, uh, the Galapagos
1: tortoise. Yeah, we're going to come back in the next episode uh, of of this journey to discuss. Uh, these fabulous creatures. I mean, it makes sense that they'd come in second. They are slower, uh, but they're they are very remarkable in their own way. So be sure to come back for that episode. In the meantime, uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts about marine iguanas, um, you know, firsthand or documentary-based. Uh, if, if you're a resident of, uh, of Ecuador, the Galapagos Islands, certainly we would love to hear from you on all of this. If you want to hear more Stuff to Blow Your Mind, I'll just remind you that core episodes of the show publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we do weird house cinema. That's our time to set aside most of the serious science and so forth and just talk about a strange film.
0: Huge thanks to our audio producer, Max Williams. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
2: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts
0: from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.